not surprisingly, what I would like to talk about this evening is equanimity. One of the greatest challenges we face in our lives is how to bring a, a balanced mind and heart, how to bring equanimity to circumstances and to situations and to experiences which we are powerless to change. Equanimity also invites us to step out of our desire to control the world, recognizing at times that when we are faced with the difficult or the painful or the challenging, there is a great temptation to want to control that experience. And sometimes we know that we can control things. But I think we, in our hearts we also know that control is actually a very poor substitute for equanimity, for wisdom, and for open-heartedness. And many times we are confronted with things outwardly and with things inwardly, circumstances and experiences, which clearly cause sorrow and which clearly cause pain. We are all subject to that experience as part of our own human existence, to be exposed to the painful. There is much that we simply can't avoid, no matter how much we have managed to create a lifestyle for ourselves, a personal lifestyle, which is armored and protected. So how to open our hearts to the painful, to the intense, without being lost in reactiveness, our control, how to open our hearts in a way in which we can receive pain, receive sorrow, receive the challenging, without being overwhelmed, is surely one of the greatest arts of the spiritual life, and one of the greatest arts of being able to live as an awake and aware human being. That capacity to do so, the capacity to embrace the difficult and the painful, I think is much more than this also. It also expresses our ability to, to take our own inner journeys and our treasuring of freedom and wisdom off a meditation cushion and into the world. And we all know that this is the major challenge for anyone who travels the spiritual path, that it is really far easier to have a calm mind and a contented mind when we sit on a cushion than when we travel in the world. And so there is something that is really needed. There are qualities of heart and mind that are really needed to bridge that difference of that gap between the meditative experience and our experience in life. And one of those bridges is equanimity, clearly. Equanimity is so, much, is so very central to deepening in meditation practice. It is one of the four divine abidings, what are called the, the abodes of, of the noble, abiding, so the abodes of the God. It's one of the factors of enlightenment, something that we encourage to consciously cultivate in order to be awake, 
it is a factor that enables us to be awake rather than to be numb or to be distant or to be protected. It is a crucial quality that of consciousness and heart that allows us to live in a world of change and extremes and yet stay in touch with a place of balance and softness and openness within our own being. Now to live in our world with an open heart and with awareness is actually to be faced with endless revelations of sorrow and of pain and suffering. If we walk down the street of any town and are actually awake, it can't help but be aware of how much sorrow is just embodied in people's faces, in their bodies, in what they are doing. We see how much sorrow is reflected and pain is reflected in the faces of people who are homeless, who are hungry, who are lonely, who live in a kind of, or people who live in a haze of alcohol or drugs. Sometimes we walk down the driveway of Gaia House and this house beside us where these elderly people live and you know, there is one person who sits in their window every day and watches all day long just people walk up and down that driveway. Sometimes when we are aware of the sorrow around us, we do feel overwhelmed. And sometimes the immensity of sorrow in our world, I feel, is so vast that it is humbling for us. It really does kind of strip away our it strips away much of the superficiality in our life to really be awake to sorrow, to be awake to pain, really does strip away superficiality. I think being awake to sorrow in a way, whether it's outward or inward, being really awake to sorrow puts us in touch in a very profound way with what is really important, what is really significant in ourselves and in the world. You know, we do see how easy it is for us to become preoccupied with, with the details in our lives, with proving ourselves or gaining this or having this or getting rid of this or redecorating our wealth. And I think sometimes to really wake up, to be connected, to really be open to an encounter with pain, with suffering, allows us to drop, in a way, so much of that kind of preoccupation. And I really feel, in a way, it is a kind of blessing. It is not that it is positive, but I think that encounter with sorrow really invites us to deepen in that sense of connection with what really matters to you and to me, what is really important in our life, what do we really value. What can we give, share, offer? How do we wish to be received in this world? And I think that humbling effect is actually something that is extraordinarily precious. But I think at times also to be really, to have a very immediate encounter with suffering and sorrow 
sometimes it also we also feel very disempowered because I do feel that at times where no matter how well intentioned we are or how much impeccability and care we bring to how we live our own lives I think sometimes we feel that there's not a great deal that we can do to really affect or touch the world around us in a meaningful or enjoying way in the Buddhist tradition this element of suffering, this actuality of suffering, is likened to a, an ocean of tears. Now, it is not just, obviously, it's not just the outer world at times as we feel powerless in relationship to. Sometimes we feel also unable to affect in a very direct and meaningful way our own inner world. Inevitably, all of us find ourselves encountering sorrows and difficulties in our own lives. There are the extremes of loss and death, the extremes of separation and rejection and failure. It is a rare person, extraordinarily rare person, who can remain untouched by life's unpredictability. In our inner world, too, we at times find that we are playing host to a number of demons that we would rather not welcome. Sometimes we have thoughts and feelings of anger or greed or hatred or loneliness or find ourselves experiencing mental states and reactions which we really don't welcome and yet they feel to be beyond our control beyond our intentions and beyond our wishes. And sometimes it's really, it seems really difficult to bring about change. I mean, we probably go through the, explore the avenue of resolutions. You know, sometimes we say something or find ourselves inhabiting a pattern of reaction that we really feel is unwholesome or unskillful. And we make these resolutions, you know, never again. Never again will I talk like that. Never again will I react in this way. And we determine, you know, that from this moment onwards, you know, I'm going to be a sensitive, receptive person until the next time our mouths open. And at times we feel so entangled within the force of our own patterns and our own habits. We, I think, have all probably experienced or encountered that experience of feeling a little bit like a leaf that is blown in the wind before the force of circumstances in our lives and before the force of our own inner feelings and thoughts. Now, that feeling of powerlessness really does, I think, evoke for us a number of different responses and reactions. Sometimes when we feel powerless in the face of the difficult, we find ourselves kind of raging against the world or against ourselves. Sometimes we find ourselves striking out with blame, or with judgment that we place upon other people 
or that we direct towards ourselves. Sometimes we blame because it, there's almost a, a belief that if we could discover whose fault it was, whose fault it is that I suffer or that someone else suffers, that we would find some sort of comfort in that. Sometimes in that feeling of powerlessness, we kind of succumb or sink inwardly into a sort of darkness of despair, feeling that it's all hopeless, you know, that everything is such a mess, so filled with anger, with hatred, that there's no possibility of change. And we feel deprived of any way of responding. Sometimes, in the face of the difficult that we can't change, we have another avenue that we follow, and that avenue is one of busyness. Now this is, I think, a really common reaction. You know, we get faced with something that really challenges us, or that really, that we feel very deeply, and when we feel unable to respond clearly, Instead, we fill our lives up with busyness so that we don't have to feel. It's a way of trying to ignore what is going on, to kind of blank it out or shut it out. And sometimes that busyness can be terribly kind of compulsive, you know, feeling that unless every moment in our day is somehow full and occupied and booked with appointments, you know, that we're going to be stranded with a kind of overwhelming feeling of despair or sorrow. You know, and busyness can become just a pattern in our lives, constantly starting new things, modifying, redecorating. In some ways, busyness can be a way of trying to kind of harden our hearts or to close our eyes and ears to what is around us. But busyness can be a way of trying to make ourselves numb. Now, I think probably in our lives, we have probably all at different times found ourselves following these different avenues as a way of responding to pain, as a way of responding to the difficult. And I think we've probably all also experienced how ineffective those avenues actually are that even when we follow those avenues of busyness or numbness or blame, that we are left still inwardly at time, many times feeling hurt or wounded or disempowered. That we are still left feeling separate and divided and apart. And I think, I do feel, that after we travel those avenues a number of times, I think we do come to a point in our lives where we do pause a bit, where we do stop, and where we do question, and really ask ourselves whether there is another way of being, whether there is another way of living other than being endlessly caught up in reaction, whether there is a way of living with an open heart and an open mind, ourselves, to the world around us, where we are not overwhelmed or wounded by what we receive. Equanimity is 
really an indispensable ingredient in nurturing that kind of balance and that kind of steadiness. Equanimity is about having that kind of inner poise and greatness of heart where we can open to life's extremes without ever departing from a finely balanced inner serenity. Equanimity is also the mother of acceptance and compassion as it is the parent of skillful action and the capacity to respond and speak and act with great clarity in our lives. There is a lot of peace in equanimity, but there is also an incredible amount of vigilance and alertness. And it's not possible without sensitivity, without being able to see, to listen, and to receive. Now, I think, I do think that equanimity has kind of picked up a bad name in spiritual circles. Primarily because equanimity is a word which is often misused and misunderstood. Now, none of us like suffering. None of us like pain. Often we don't trust our ability to respond skillfully and clearly. And in the midst of that aversion to pain, sometimes we hear this word equanimity spoken of. And equanimity is sometimes presented as a way of being inwardly, where we abide, where we're not disturbed, where we remain untouched and unmoved, and a kind of invincibility. Now, I think, given that we don't like pain, sometimes this sounds like a very attractive thing to be able to possess this kind of invincibility, this sense of having transcended or gone beyond. And then what happens is that equanimity is equated with a kind of spiritual indifference where we may be able to inhabit a very lofty spiritual landscape where we're untouched by life circumstances. Now, it's used in this way often spiritually, and sometimes you hear these statements, you know, that everything is empty, that all appearances are empty, so therefore it is really most wise to go beyond, to transcend the world. And that seems to invalidate a need to respond, a need to be a participant in this world we live in. And sometimes you hear all these stories and these famous spiritual stories of people who've gone beyond. I don't know where they went to, but they've gone beyond and they've transcended suffering and they've transcended their bodies and they've transcended life, actually. And you also hear the statement, you know, that all suffering is an illusion. Now, there is, of course, a great deal of truth in these statements. There is a great deal of truth in seeing the emptiness of appearances and seeing the illusion of suffering and of conflict. But that doesn't imply that suffering or that conflict is irrelevant. 
I mean, there's truth in saying that there is much emptiness, but we also need to appreciate that everything and that everyone in this world is also a unique and precious expression of truth and is thus really deserving of the fullness of honor and appreciation and sensitivity that we are able to bring, that we are able to offer to others and to ourselves. There is another, I think, another factor which gives equanimity a little bit of a bad rap in spiritual circles. I think sometimes equanimity doesn't seem attractive and people have a resistance to equanimity because of an addiction to intensity and to passion. And I think there is at times a feeling that if we're really equanimous, even, steady, balanced, that in order to be like that, we're going to have to let go of the intensity in our lives. You know, the big dramas, the huge excitement, you know, the major fantasies, the kind of big constructions that can be so delightful. I think sometimes there's a feeling that we're going to end up as a kind of spiritual unit if we're economists. There is a Tibetan uh, saying, which a description of equanimity, which actually I think is quite wonderful. And equanimity is defined as being equally near and equally close to all things. So it is not in any way a kind of distancing or separating, but it's a warmth and an openness of heart that is equally near and equally close to all things. Now there isn't actually any formula or prescription or even necessarily any real practice for developing equanimity because it's not so much a state like concentration that we can achieve or attain. Nor is it a strategy that we kind of pull out of our spiritual bag when we're faced with suffering and elation. It is much more a way of relating and how we are willing to see ourselves, how we are willing to be present in the world around us. key element in equanimity is responsiveness, is the foundation, it is founded upon calmness, calmness and composure. It's expressed in balance, but certainly its development has a great deal to do with wisdom and with insight, with the willingness to let go, and insight and wisdom has much to do with our own willingness to listen inwardly, to bring an open heart and an open mind to what is in this moment, in this day, in this life. It's a quality of, of heart and mind that actually really needs an incredibly careful nurturing and developing 
a great deal of integrity and impeccability in how we actually meet the world around us so that we can learn from life's challenges rather than always being fated to either be a victim or a master. I don't think it would actually be accurate to describe equanimity as a quality of mind. It is much more to do with the heart. Because first we feel, in our lives first we feel, we receive the world outwardly and inwardly on the level of feeling. And then we think, then we react, then we conclude, then we have concepts. It is not so much trying to, you know, certainly we're not going to find equanimity if you're trying to have the right kind of spiritually acceptable thoughts. We're going to find equanimity through listening to our hearts, through listening really to our own responses to the extremes of joy and sorrow, praise and blame, gain and loss, success and failure, separation and connection. These are the places in our lives that actually call upon us to bring balance and poise and to nurture equanimity. These are also the times, those polarities are also the times when we find ourselves most disconnected from that place of balance. Even when we blow it, even when we blow it, even when we find ourselves caught up in extremes, a part of that willingness to learn is really recognizing that equanimity is just the next moment away. There's a story I'd like to read you. When he was asked which was the right way, that of sorrow or that of joy, the rabbi of Bertachev said, there are two kinds of sorrow and two kinds of joy. When a person broods over the misfortunes that have come to them, when they tower in a corner and despair of help, that is a bad kind of sorrow concerning which it is said, the divine presence does not dwell in a place of dejection. The other kind is the honest grief of a person who knows what they lack. The same is true of joy. One who is devoid of inner substance and in the midst of their empty pleasures doesn't feel it, nor tries to fill their lack, is a fool. One who is truly joyful is like a person whose house is burned down, who feels their need deep in their soul and begins to build anew. Over every stone that is laid, their heart rejoices. Many of you here have done a number of retreats, even if this is your first retreat. Sometimes the experience of beginning a retreat is to experience a great deal of storminess in the beginning. Many thoughts, many swings between faith and doubt, between um, contraction and calmness, between agitation and serenity. And in the beginning of retreats, sometimes there's a lot of excitement over making progress and a lot of despair when we seem to lose ground. Now, what we find as we begin, continue to pay attention is that the, many of those initial storms of meditation really do begin to ease and to pass. 
It doesn't mean that we suddenly become empty inwardly. Now, instead we often find that we have very similar thoughts, very similar images, very similar feelings that are arising. The contents of our experience not necessarily changing fundamentally. But what is changing and what does begin to change fundamentally is our relationship to those contents. That we find ourselves, through continuing to pay attention, very much less prone to dejection, to, to blame, to feelings of disappointment. We find ourselves much less prone to, to feelings of highs and excitement. What is beginning to emerge in that transformation is equanimity. There comes that balance in the midst of the changes we're, exp we're experiencing. Now, I think also the experience of many people who have done a retreat is that they leave a retreat and one of the first things that they seem to lose is equanimity. One of the first things to develop and one of the first things that seems to be lost in the kind of transport from Gaia House to home that suddenly we find ourselves quickly swept away by the busyness of our lives or of the real world. And sadly then, at times, in those contact situations, find ourselves traveling the same path of familiar re reactions. You know, on retreats, we feel we've left something behind forever. You know, we've left behind our judgment, you know. We've forgiven the people we're angry with, you know. We're felt much more patience with our children. And then we go home and we find like the ruts of these reactions seem to almost lie in wait for us. You know, and given the right circumstances, it seems that somehow we just kind of slip right into those ruts that are awaiting us. And we find ourselves swinging again. I think sometimes when we have that experience with equanimity, we conclude at times where equanimity must be dependent upon having a very simple life where we don't have to make any decisions, where nothing bad happens to us, where nobody bugs us. Then I can be equanimous. This is not actually what equanimity is about at all. We do lose concentration. I think that it's very important to be very clear about that. Concentration is something you achieve, you attain, it's a state, and you lose it. You lose it, unless you live your life in a totally concentrated way. You lose concentration. Equanimity is about another dimension of understanding altogether, where we are not having a state to protect, but where we are cultivating a willingness to learn, a willingness to listen, a willingness to open and to learn from the demands in our lives. We're asked to be extraordinarily awake and we're asked to apply insight. And I think this is a major challenge, to be asked to apply insight. All of us, everyone has insight. You know, I'm not, this is not kind of part of the argument. We all have lots of insight. Everyone has tons of insight. Everyone who comes to Gaia House is overflowing with wisdom. You know, we all know what causes suffering, 
We all know what brings joy. We all know what causes contraction. We all know what causes separation. And these are not mysteries. You know, people don't come to guy has to kind of solve the mysteries in their lives of why they suffer. They already know it before they come. You know, or if they're not so aware of it before they come, you know, it becomes very clear very quickly. It doesn't take, you know, insight is the easiest, easiest part of depth in our lives. Our challenge and really what retreats are about and what a spiritual life is about is much more about how to live in accord with the wisdom that is already with us. How to live really in accord with the insight we already have. I think this is really worth looking at just in the, our experience of a single day, our experience of a single moment. There's often not that much which is mysterious about pain. Far more of a mystery for us, perhaps, or a puzzle or a challenge or an invitation is really how to live in accord and in harmony with the wisdom that is with us. I think it's really worth questioning. Is it really life that unbalances us? Is it really the circumstances in our lives that undermine our composure? Is it pain and sorrow that sets us off into endless reactiveness? Or is it our relationship to that, to all of that? I mean, letting go is certainly a foundation of equanimity. The degree of attachment that we have to people, to things, to opinions, to order, to predictability, that is the degree of resistance and reaction we will experience in the face of loss or change. The degree of attachment that we have to ideas or opinions, to how things should be in the world, in other people or in ourselves, is the degree that we adopt adopt inwardly an inner tyrant. It is also the degree that we find ourselves filled with judgment and reaction and resistance when someone, when something, or when we ourselves don't conform to how things should be. To be able to do that, you know, to be really in bondage to our ideas, to our attachments, to our opinions, is really to close our hearts, is to make an enemy of that which doesn't conform to how we think they should be. Equanimity is the first casualty of shoulds. Equanimity is the first casualty of expectation. But really, in a way, we set ourselves up to be that casualty. Letting go certainly is an ingredient in developing balance. Is there another way to meet disappointment, to meet disillusionment, to meet failure, to meet loss, in a way in which we can really embrace those experiences without any kind of blame, without defining ourselves, valuing ourselves, or judging ourselves by them? How much can we bring forgiveness and clarity and compassion not to avoid, but to stay present, to let go of the temptation to avoid or to close down. Then, so many of the things in our lives, I think, which we have previously seen as being enemies, actually become our vehicles for learning. 
There was a man who lived on the northern frontier of China who was very skilled in interpreting events. One day, for no reason, his horse ran away to the nomads across the border. Everyone tried to console him, but his father said, what makes, you sure, what makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? Some months later, his horse returned, bringing a splendid nomad stallion. Everyone congratulated him, but his father said, what makes you so sure this isn't a disaster? Their household was richer by a fine horse, which the son loved to ride. One day he fell and broke his leg. Everyone tried to console him, but his father said, What makes you so sure this isn't a blessing? A year later, the nomads came in force across the border, and every able-bodied man took his bow and went into battle. The Chinese frontiersmen lost nine of every ten men. Only because the son was lame did father and son survive to take care of each other. Truly, blessing turns to disaster, and disaster to blessing. The changes have no end, nor can the mystery be fathomed. I think to learn to meet the world with balance, we also need to learn how to meet the polarities in our own lives with balance. None of us likes pain or suffering or conflict. And they come to us. We do like, perhaps, happiness and joy and pleasure and success, and they are also part of our lives. They are not in themselves the sources of imbalance. The source of imbalance is far more lying within our addiction. To be addicted to one extreme of those polarities, that is the likelihood to which we will fall out of balance when we are faced with its opposite. Praise and blame and gain and loss, success and failure, separation and con connection. How much we can meet these with grace, with the willingness to welcome and to celebrate that which brings joy without becoming addicted. Failure and blame and separation, how much can we embrace them without resistance? With a willingness to learn, to really understand that true joy comes from within our own being and not from the circumstances that change in our lives. Equanimity is a way of cutting through those addictions, not avoiding and not holding, not running from the difficult, not grasping hold of that which is pleasant. Learn, it's a learning process, which is vital, which is alive, which we bring to the circumstances in our lives, which we bring to our thoughts and to our feelings, to see what we can need to accept with grace, what we need to change. Equanimity, I think, also brings clarity to see that sometimes the things which we have previously called pleasure, like gain and success and praise, they are the causes of sorrow when they are not met with equanimity. Now, this practice that we do here 
It's really not about inhabiting some very lofty or very high state. It's not about separating ourselves from anything. It is really a practice of inquiry and exploration, of bringing insight into every moment of our lives, every circumstance, every change. It's a practice which requires an enormous, immense amount of awareness and vitality. And just the last thing I would like to read to you from Lao Tzu. The ancient masters were profound and subtle. Their wisdom was unfathomable. There's no way to describe it. All we can describe is their appearance. They were careful as someone crossing an iced-over stream, alert as a warrior in enemy territory courteous as a guest, and fluid as melting ice, shapeable as a block of wood, receptive as a valley, and clear as a glass of water. Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving until the right action arises by itself? The master doesn't seek fulfillment. Not seeking, not expecting. She is present and can welcome all things. May all beings live with calmness of mind. May all beings live with openness of heart. May all beings live in peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.